doing uh it's ken pooch van druden here again uh, i also we have chris raybold with us for our uh uh second talk here you know if you didn't watch the video before this um i i've decided that i want to do a bunch of these videos where maybe chris and i kind of uh push off of each other and talk about different things um you know both of us are good friends and we talk to each other a lot on the phone and we have conversations like this all the time talking about audio because we love audio um and i thought that it might be interesting for you guys to be kind of the fly on the wall during that discussion um so this is our second video um the first one we were talking uh specifically about drum microphones and we got off on a little bit of a tangent on some busing and um, placement on the console and all the kind of stuff as we do um but um I thought, you know, at the end of that video, we started talking um, a little bit about how you, both you and I use triggers. Speak to that a little bit. Like, Chris, what do you, how do you use triggers on the drums? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started doing that 20 years ago. And like most things uh, for, that all of us do, you know, I learned it somewhere. I remember this particular method I read about. Um, and man, I would love to be like a, 18 19 20 year old mixer now because the wealth of knowledge actually it might suck because it's almost overwhelming you know what i mean oh man but i remember this there's so much and i get stuck in those same you know learning dives so i'm just like oh my god my brain can't take it so about 20 years ago i read an article about someone doing it's very simple the way i did it in the past when it was analog i started with these i specifically use shell mounted triggers now they're not if you really want to get down to the nanosecond, there is the fastest response you're going to get is going to be from a, a trigger placed directly on the head. For that, for the for the the strike of the drum to happen, the shell to resonate, and particularly depending on where that is, there's a little more time in there. That being said, it works great for me. My feeling on, and I actually thought about this early on. I don't remember what I read about initially what they were how they were doing it. Is I don't want to do anything that's going to affect the tuning. Um, so I don't want to put anything on the head unless it's you're triggering. There is no acoustic sound, which I've never done. But if you're simply triggering sounds, you could dampen the head all you want. doesn't matter. So I try to stick with shell mounted triggers. Long time ago, I started with these Fishman. Fishman made these shell mounted triggers. They were small and a right. super thin little line. I don't know if you remember those. I did. Um, they would break often. I used those. I'd run them down the analog snake with everything was running down an analog snake and they would just go simply analog into the key inputs on all of the gates, which for me back in the day were either uh, like most people was either uh, were either drama 201s or Aphex 612s or 622s. That's it. You know, yeah. maybe you used an Intelligate, you know, <laughs> maybe you used yeah. some BSS stuff, but that was kind of it. So then when we, and it's just simply that they go, and I can tell you how I do it digitally, uh, but it's just that they go into the side chain. So for if anybody hasn't done this before, the gate is now opening not by the amplitude produced and received by the microphone the gate is now opening when it essentially receives not essentially when it receives signal from that from the trigger that trigger go ahead 
I just, I just want everyone to be clear that we are talking specifically about using triggers to open the threshold of the gate of an acoustic sound. We're not triggering sounds here. We're talking about triggering the opening of the individual gate on the uh, particular tom. That tom is still mic'd with something else, whatever, you know, for me, it's a 4099, for you, it's a 98. Um, and so all we're doing is using those triggers to key the threshold opening of that gate. I just wanted to point that out as we get discussing yeah, this more. Go ahead. Which is very, and that's, yeah, uh, very important to point out there so people actually know what I'm talking about here as I get going. <laughs> so uh, one thing that's cool, now what you'll find is your thresholds will inherently lower when this happens. Because as we know, we've all gotten that really – bad sound in live sound where the toms are going because they're opening with cymbal hits or obviously the biggest offender is a snare right um that's nearby you will get to a point with a trigger where where since it's reacting to the resonance of the shell if you drop the threshold low enough i mean that shell's sitting there going and it'll still open to other ones but one thing that's neat uh, it'll still open to the occasional or one drum just might be more you'll find that one that for whatever reason has a, a higher threshold um nowadays I find, I find uh real quick i find that the placement of the trigger on those particular toms makes a huge difference so for instance if you have two toms that are next to each other i don't place the triggers on the shell close to the toms do you understand they're on the outside of those toms if there's no other toms around them i make the trigger be the furthest away from other things to you know send an impulse down that trigger line so i actually think a lot about where i'm placing those triggers it's not just something random you know um for me i place them kind of like halfway down a shell but away from everything else as much as i can where where do you place same and ultimately it is a transducer if there is a sound uh you know it it is an acoustic source um itself so if there is a sound next to it in fact when you cue them up you will hear clear there's the cack sound of the trigger but you as you know you'll clearly hear audio there as well i too do that exact same thing that you said plus if you think about it the center of the drum is where the drum is going to be most pliable. So that's where vibration is going to be. It's going to be most susceptible to vibrate to give me that sound. And I think it's important to mention to anyone listening to that, you know, that we're meant, we're saying toms. Ultimately I will put these on every drum up there. I will sometimes turn them off on things like kick and snare. If to be honest with you, it's just working better for whatever those two at, at times will work better without them. But one thing I wanted to say is Nowadays, and these two I see have become the de facto standard in the industry, the Pentec RS5. They're inexpensive. They're pretty damn tough. Um, They, those seem to be what most folks are using now. They have a little quarter inch output. So you just got to have, you know, they just got to be turned on this and that. But now in the past with on the analog snake, they would, you know, they would just run right down the snake, right into the unit. Now, at least the way I do it, I don't, you know, they run, it has to run, it runs down the digital snake. It's part of my input list, um, uh, the fiber, whatever it is. And then I hit channels with them and I'll do that so that I have consistent levels across all of them. 
In other words, that it's hitting the levels are hitting at the same spot on, on all of the gates so that my, I do that because I'm kind of anal. I like to see a lot of my thresholds be in relatively the same place. One way that it also works in your favor is you can manipulate. You could actually, let's say they're all coming in at negative 10 on their own. Every time they hit a Tom, the, the trigger goes to negative 10. I could actually gain those down to negative 20, which means now my threshold on my gate is going to be, I can lower it as well. So that's when you get into the reason that for anybody listening, why the hell, what's the point? The point is you get lower thresholds, ghost notes through, which I don't know how many of you guys actually have ghost notes, but you know, it's just, and then that snares not powering it. So you can manipulate it. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Let me, let me give some clarity though. So the, the, uh, the actual triggers are transducers themselves that end up in a quarter inch female. Okay. So then you have to make a cable that goes quarter inch male to an XLR male mm-hmm. that you would then plug into your stage cable that goes to your mm-hmm. stage rack. And so you are mm-hmm. treating them as they are analog inputs, just as you would with toms. So for instance, for mm-hmm. Iron Maiden, there are nine toms. And by the way, if I didn't use triggers with Iron Maiden, there's no way that I would survive. Nine open Tom I microphones. Bet. It's just, it's, you can't, right? Um, so, right. But, but there's nine Toms. That means that there's nine microphones and nine inputs of triggers. So it's 18 inputs of Toms, which sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. And especially for a band that's mm-hmm. only 56 inputs, 18 of those are Toms. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, and, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's tough to talk the, the whole crew as a whole. You know, you might be the only guy using those triggers. That's like, true. Oh, we got to plug, plug Chris's triggers in. I'm like, yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though, is I drug, I drug uh, monitor engineers along with me. Tater now uses them in Monitor World. Once they, once they get into it, yeah. you can't. The argument against it, I don't know that there is one. You know, there isn't. There isn't. Um, and, and it's important to note what what I'm what we're saying. Like I say, I take it to that to a channel, and I then manipulate the channel. You then on the gate on the actual source choose that channel I just mentioned as your key source. So yes. that's how you. Anyway, just to make clear. No, that's great. And in the, my last video I did about wh- the way that I do my console in Iron Maiden, I kind of showed that routing so that if, you, if you're a little bit confused by that, just go back to that video and it, I show exactly where the routing comes from. Now, another clarity mm-hmm. I wanted to make is that part of the reason that I do the same thing that you do, which is make every trigger be the same, where they're all exactly minus 10, for instance, is it helps you to see day to day whether a trigger has died or not, yeah. or it's um, you, acting weird, or maybe it's, it's you know, you can look at it, even without listening to that trigger, you can say, wow, something's wacky with that mm-hmm. trigger today. Um, and so mm-hmm. uh, the the whole threshold thing is, is really important too, and that is, um, I don't know, that's kind of more of an advanced concept in the sense that you're, you're talking about adjusting um, the thresholds versus the other instruments that are around it. Um, but but if you understand that, that is the reason that we're kind of adjusting the uh, gain, the overall gain of the acoustic transducer. Right. <laughs> and so uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted to point that out that there's two reasons why we make them all the same. Right. And that point, you're, we could do this now or later at another point, that, that, that speaks to gain structure as a whole. 
and the importance of here we go tangent time that's where that's the importance of no I, when i see guys who there is no how do you even line check if you don't have a ref like i don't understand it like you've got a we you know we're we're tracking and mixing and mastering every day. So if that your mix that you have dialed in, you need to have a standard reference. Yeah. And whether that's numeric, it should be a numerical reference or somewhere I know when it hits yellow, it's got to be something. And mine are different for all different sorts, types of inputs. Whole other conversation. But that's why having standards. And that's when, you know, when you go, hey, it's different today. And the tech says, no, it's yeah. not. I didn't do anything different. It's like, I'm not saying you did. I'm just telling I'm just you. saying there's something different. I know. You it's know. different. Yeah. You know, and you know, that's a good it's same thing with, and that's why mic placement is so important too. Oh yeah, totally, um, totally. And we're gonna get we're gonna get there in a second. Um cool. The it's funny that you say that because I totally am so anal about um yeah. oh man. Okay, so two things. I know we're kind of off off on a tangent. Um I I don't know if this is ego or not, but um, I almost if I'm sharing a stage track with someone, I'm the guy. I oh, want control of, oh, yeah. of the mic priest. Oh and, man! And the reason, oh, but wait, the reason is, and then the way that I sell it to a monitor engineer is this: I am so anal about that input being exactly the same every day, sound wise and meter wise. Um, like I go to weird extremes, even like I, the Digico meters are amazing. They're awesome they are. plasma meters. Yeah. Bridge out Absolutely. But you know, what's weird is I often look at uh, the meter bridge of Reaper as, yeah. as my real go-to it's often it. it's right here next to me i don't have to like screw you know i'm getting yeah. old i can't see shit but i hear you right here next to me is the record screen with the reaper meter bridge with really good meters as well their meters are really good too um mm -hmm. and i can literally tell i can tell if a microphone is not placed placed properly yeah uh, even if it's off by like an inch you know, or Absolutely. half an inch, I can look at it and be like, not something's up with that. And then makes me go up on the stage. So anyway, My, that's, a, that's a whole other rabbit nope. hole. But. Oh, it matters. And that's what this is for too, is for us to do that. <laughs> My sort of, uh, I, I, I have targets on the, again, on the Digico or whatever the console might be. Uh, but my sort of next level, I'll do this thing where I'll go through during a tour and I'll be like, all right, let's look at what every group of instruments is doing. And what I mean by that is what is their peak level? So I'll solo the drums VCA and I'll watch and I'll say as a whole, it is because there's peak, you know, obviously there's peak level and there's RMS. I know it's, we're getting into some, some topics here, but I think this is super important. Peak is the truth. Peak, right. you can clip. RMS is free, baby. Like get, the louder that is, that's how you, you'll find signals with a lower peak, but the RMS is higher. The sound twice as loud. So, but peak is kind of your totally. truth because you can't, you can't clip. Uh, I realize you can within the digital platform. Let's just pretend we all know clipping is bad. So I'll solo, for instance, the v drum VCA and C negative five. Then I'll solo the base VCA and look, and I, and I can give you, I'm looking at a piece of paper, right? Somewhere in this notebook here, I have it written down from when I did this recently. There's usually, I'll go through the guitars, the horns, the keys, the, the vocals, this and that drums usually peak five DB louder than all sustained sources. My bass is usually a little higher by doing that. What, what I'm getting with it, 
where I'm going with that is I'll look at paths in waves, which has been around forever, you know, and I'll look at the peak level on there. I'll note it. And man, it's the same every tour. It's just the way I mix. So not only is that a fun little oh, fun fact, look at my gain. It also tells me how I can set my gain structure to start. And that doesn't mean every input has like, it's all over the place, but I have very standardized things like things with strong transients hit at, we'll say negative 10 things with more sustain typically land. I go back and forth anywhere between five DB below that and 10 DB below that. Cause I know once I get through with my process, the end result is going to be the drums are going to be hitting about five DB louder on peak peak. Though. That's what's important. No, anyway, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So you're, I mean, so Pat to look at. I'm a dork about it. You're more really, anal than I am, dude. Paz is like, that's yeah, way, down, way down a rabbit hole, but way to, way to I hear, that's cool. But it also, it goes back to, it's what I was saying about laying out the desk. Like, yeah, that sort of like having that knowledge base of where do I want to see things hit is also so that I can be lazy. So that like when I guess, so when I do, or, or I can be efficient. So when I dial up, you know, when I, if I have to dial up a mix quick, I'm not just guessing on my input gains. Like I know if they hit in these certain things. And for me, it's like drums, tracks, and often bass will hit at say negative 10. Some guys might say negative 20, whatever. I say negative 10. Um, uh, and then from there, I can scale my other so that when I move the faders up, when I push those faders up, I'm in a starting spot that's realistic. Anyway, so that's, that's why it's really it. interesting because we we are very similar in this in that sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, you uh, I can um, look at things without even listening to them and tell that tell you whether that's, it's correct or not and whether it's going to work in my mix. Um, yes. simply because we, we both have this workflow that we've used for years and years and years. And, we, mm-hmm. you know, you'll see something and be like, you know, eh, something's funky with that. I know there's something wrong. Um, yeah. and, and not even listening to it, like just looking at a looking meter at or looking at something and saying, you know, that's weird. Um, and I think and that's I think an important that's skill that you should develop. Like it's, it's a skill that you yeah. should have as part of your own arsenal as a mixer is mm-hmm. recognizing you know, I've watched opening act guys where I know something's wrong. I'm listening to something coming out of the PA and go, okay, I, I know that something's up with that kick drum, whatever. And I'll walk over to the console and I'll look and I know right away, like what's wrong, mm-hmm. but they don't have that skill. Like they look at it and they, and they know something's wrong. Like they hear it, but they don't know mm-hmm. where to look for it or how to fix it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's something that you should try to develop over time. Um, I'm not really sure how you train people for that. You know, that's always a hard thing. You just develop your own set of standards. I think that's it. I I mean, and I learned the whole notion of like really using meters. uh, I don't want to say creatively, but more like analytically. I remember I heard this old, I can't remember what Southern rock band this guy mixed. I remember who it was. I remember the conversation him talking about, he's like, yeah, I could walk up to PM 3000 at line check and just seeing he was talking about on a VU meter, which is a whole other That's type of learning. Yeah. Yeah. Like a kick drum hits at like negative 20, but the totally. peak is at like plus 14, you know, anyway, but I remember hearing him. I, I, remember I was young and I remember hearing him say that. And I was like, hell yeah, I need to learn how to do that too. Cool. You know, and it's paid huge dividends. Yeah, you know? it sure has me so, too. Um, so yeah. that's, that's a skill uh, that you should work on. Um, 
I want to kind of rein us back just a little bit because we sure, at sure. the first part of this, uh, these first two videos, I promised that we were going to talk about my choices and my placement. So, uh, mm -hmm. and not just on drums. Um, I say this all the time. Listen, I everything that I do, I learned from somebody else. Like I'm not smart enough to like make stuff up, right? So when, especially when it comes to mic placement, uh, the way that I place my microphones is because I watched somebody else do it and either mm -hmm. succeed at it or suck at it. And mm -hmm. so, and, and you know, the sucky way I went, I'm never doing that, man. That's a really stupid, um, mm -hmm. but um, the, the way that I learned that mic placement was super important was by, you know, I was a studio guy as you were. And um, so I got to be an assistant engineer behind some of the biggest names producers, you know, in Los Angeles. And I used to be an assistant for Bruce Redine and he would, um, literally take an entire day getting sounds in front of bass guitars and and guitars in general. He would put me out in the control room um, <clears throat> or out in the studio. He would be in the control room with me with a pair of headphones and he would say, you know, take that microphone, move it a half inch to the left in the intercom. He would say, you know, move it to the left and I would move it and he'd say, stop. And then he would listen for like five minutes. And then he would say, okay, mm -hmm. move it back to the right, just about, uh, you know, half of a half of what you did, you know? And we would sit there mm -hmm. with a microphone, like moving it around the cone of a guitar or a bass, mm -hmm. literally for a day. Um, and, you know, those were mm -hmm. the days in the, in the nineties when, you know, they were just hemorrhaging money in studios. So they were spending, yeah, right. you know, yeah. millions of dollars and, and could have all the time in the world to do stuff. But what mm -hmm. I learned from that was how important moving a microphone a half an inch makes a difference mm -hmm. and where you do it. So from your perspective, like where did you learn that and how do you pl do placement and speak to some of that? Mm -hmm. Well, I, like you, everything that I've, for the most part, I've read, seen, but ultimately tried, you know, uh, it's all been from experimentation and I can tell you a, a ton of a ton of research over the years, reading, reading about classic records or this and that or from live engineers that I respect and how they would get their sounds or how you get that particular sound. A lot of that. But of course, like everything, it's just trial and error where I've got there was a time when I would worked for one single band for a long time which is widespread panic. People hear me reference them, them all the time, but it was great. There was in my hometown of Athens, Georgia. I would go to the warehouse, set up a kit and literally take a mic and I would do it. And I would just label it as such. I'd do it 45 at the center at three fingers. Nice. I do it flat. I do, I do all these different things and it would just be, and I'm not any killer drummer. I'm literally just hitting, striking the drums, but, and I would do stuff like that. And, and back in the day, I don't even know if I was doing that with a doll. I mean, I think that might've even been to like DA, whatever eights or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Whatever it was. And then as time went on, then I had access to it. So that was, that was really big for me. Um, but really just trial and error. And a lot of times you can be, you can be influenced that a certain mic technique is great when it actually was just the source. Like I've had great vocalists, for example, yeah. that I couldn't tell you what mic I like on them. Cause even though there's a ph phenomenal vocal coming out, there's no microphone near it, you know? And at the same time, 
any microphone near that phenomenal vocal output would probably sound great. And the same thing's true. So I have some, when you asked me on the last one, what my favorite kit was, and I thought of this one drum sound, man, I could have put anything near that snare and it would sound amazing. You know, it's true for but, me now. Yeah. But it does matter. It does matter where you, you point at that. Great. Right? It, yeah. Greatly. But just that, that kind of sort of comes back, comes back full circle to ultimately it's the source. What I do though is very systematic. Like you were saying, I check the drums. I don't often place them. I work, talk about another person you've got to have a really close relationship with whoever's putting the mics up there. I let them know what I like to see. I like them. I let them know where I want it to clip, how I want it to clip or how, what to stand, which I don't like. I don't want to uh, 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 LP claw on a stand because when you move the stand, we just, we have to get it. We got to be on the same page. Right. Then I'll go up there and check it three or four times a day, you know? So for me, I'll just start and I'll go quickly through them. The 91 is kind of a no brainer. We all kind of know where that's going. Uh, if you're using just one, like most folks, it's just right in the middle. Might be on one of those Kelly shoe things that raises it up. Yeah. You know, I am careful with those. Don't just sling it in there because yeah. you'll look and it'll be sideways. And if they've got a big fluffy pillow or the dude puts a blanket in, whichever way it came out of the case that day, like still be still be particular about it. For me, People, I'm real, no real quick. A, a 91, if you don't know, it's a boundary microphone, right? But the capsule of it sits in this end and it's pointed at a 45 degree angle. So if that microphone gets into a fluffy pillow like this and starts mm -hmm. being pointed at the fluffy pillow instead of the, the beater part of a kick drum, um, you'll get a mm -hmm. really poopy sounding kick drum. So, you know, it's, it is important. It's the way that the capsule is. It's basically, believe it or not, if you don't know this, it's a, it's uh, a 98 capsule that's inside of a boundary mm -hmm. microphone. So it's a little tiny capsule that's at 45 degrees inside of a, a boundary, boundary mic for you guys out there. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. And no, 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 that's cool. And so then for that second mic, I, I mentioned in the other video, now I like to get in and a little, if this is the head of the drum, I'd say it's maybe a fist off and it's off. It's somewhere between the center where the, where the beater strikes and the shell. So the mic's somewhere over here. What I don't like is what everyone does in live sound is, you know, there's a hole off to the side and you just put that mic in the hole. That a lot of times you're miking just the air pressure from that point. I don't like that sound. I do like a center cut hole in the head. It's just rare to find someone live that will allow you to do that. I know that's true. You know what I mean? It's cool. So a lot of times I get it. I don't like miking over there for that second kick, but I will. Now, again, we start talking about the haphazard blanket pillow placement, man, check that shit too. Because if not, there's a pillow sticking in like, what are you miking? You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. That's it. So that's for that one, if that's what we're doing, everything's got to stay in the same place every day. That's all I know, wherever I put it, because of phase relationship. Yeah. And uh, it, it's got to be the same. So quickly moving up to snares, you mentioned tight kits. That can throw all the rules off. If you can only get a drum, a snare straight between two, like yeah. sometimes you just got to do what you can do. Totally. For me, I'm usually, I'll tell you right now, toms are usually three fingers above the head. Those are my fingers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all subjective and arbitrary to, you know, just me, just whatever. But uh, snares are usually more like two. But they're, for me, snares, and I've gone around and around. I've done it straight across. I've done it from like way up. I've done it back where it gets a little brighter and this or that. It's kind of generic. It's, this is the, the rim of the snare. It's coming in like that. 
it's usually about two fingers up, kind of pointing towards the center, more or less a little flatter than a 45 degree angle. Tom's hat's usually a fist above the hat, usually on the outside, wherever I can get it. For me, Tom's, the, the mic is just over the maybe an inch or two into, and it's three fingers. And I'm, I'm very systematic about that. The ride, we will measure daily to come up with it. Um, and I am very, I am absolutely that guy for the so overheads. You're, that guy. I'm, you're, the, you're I, the guy that gets the tape measure out. Okay, cool. I, I get made fun of all the time for it. But it, uh, uh, I could not care less. Because it's <laughs> so it, matters. Will, it, matters. it matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. Now, can you, if you're just doing assembly thing, just put them, the symbol, put the mics wherever you want them near the cluster of symbols. Then we're going to get into a really advanced topic, which would be how do you deal then with the snare offset there? I won't go there, but I will tell you what I do is I split the difference between thinking of picking up the optimal uh, symbol, you know, per mic sound versus the overall kit sound. And most importantly, that super loud snare. So I find a plane that it's usually the, if you're looking at a snare drum, it would be the almost like the, three o'clock or two o'clock lug. It's the plane of the kick and the snare. And I go equidistant to those mics. And it's usually anywhere from 38 to 43 inches. Um, and I just do that. So again, so that I can comment daily when I go, no, something's wrong. No, something's not right. I'm telling like, I'm, I, know, I know all of the, cause there's just so many variables, you know? And once the people you work with know, like, eh, he's serious and he's a stickler about this. There's just, then they're on board. No, they're on board with, and they know he's not full of shit. There's no, like, no, no. I, I hear you. And, and, you know, um, you do, you have to prove yourself to your text too, right? Like you have to you say, do. you know, well, come and listen, you know, it really makes a difference. Um, mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, I kind of do the same thing you're talking about, but I do it a little bit electronically. Um, I place my overheads so that they're kind of the best optimum for symbol use. Uh, and then you move them digitally? Yes. So that, ah, that's and I've never even thought of doing that. So I do that. And then mm -hmm. I also listen to panning. My overheads are almost never all the way panned. I bring I, pans in. I bring pans in to make the snare drum be in the center. Yes. You understand? So like I'm soloing up my overheads, those two microphones, and I adjust mm -hmm. my pans. And sometimes it'll end up where my left one's at nine and my right one's at 530, whatever it mm -hmm. is to make it to where that snare drum is right dead center. So it's sharing that space. I've even done zero and uh, like that. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? This yep. banging snare sound and then it crashes up. Yeah. I'm with you there. Yeah. 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 Totally. Cool, cool, man. Um, that's awesome. Uh, so we've talked about overheads. We talked about your placement of, of everything else. Um, mm -hmm. just quickly, I mean, you know, I, I have a lot of those same rules, you know, two fingers here, you know, whatever fist here. And, um, but mm -hmm. in general, my rule is the, the center of the capsule, whatever I'm using should be put, especially on drums should be pointing at wherever that drum is being struck. So I had, a, yeah, so I have that same rule. I look at a drum kit, I'll walk up to a drum kit and look where the, the drummer is hitting particular toms because often mm -hmm. it's not it's not dead center in the middle of that tom. Most times mm -hmm. on a tom, he'll be hitting it, you know, to the right of the dot or or if there's no dot, the the top part of the uh, the head. 
And I have found kind of just in general, now it doesn't always work, of course, nothing is just in stone. But in general, right. if I take microphones and point them, especially at a snare drum, if I point them where they're striking that particular instrument, um, I usually mm -hmm. that's usually like the best starting point. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just thought of something, a point to make. For me, when I'm on, and also thinking about just the way, you know, microphone technology, how they work, um, part of the reason for, I too, ideally would like the, the microphone to be pointing where a stick, you know, yeah. is hitting. But I'm also mindful of intended use of proximity effect. You know, I don't ever do the mic that's touching. I don't do that. But I know, particularly if it's a drum that's kind of thin, I'm like, you know what? We're going to fake a little low in there, meaning I am. I might increase that angle a bit and get it a little lower because I want that um, I want that added fatness that comes from. And, of course, that's what you're going to get with that. But, you know, now that being all this being said, man, I see guys back in the day that would take EV408s, you know, the egg mic, turn them straight down. Here's yes. the edge of the drum, straight down. There's so no they're micing the, the edge of the drum at that point. They're micing the edge of the drum, and yeah. somehow it would sound amazing. And then I'd do it, and I'd be like, that's the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. You know? Well, that's so, just it. I mean, you know, it, it, I wanted to do this with you, and we're going to do a bunch more of them um, mm -hmm. because – I, I want to point out to people that there's no wrong way in getting there, right? You know, if you get there, then you've done your job, right? The guy with the 40 ounce beer doesn't give a crap about whether or not your tom mic is pointed where the stick is hitting the tom. But what he does care about is whether the drums sound good or not, right? So whatever it is, yeah, whatever it is um, that helps you to get there, then cool. I just wanted this to be two dudes talking about how we do it and maybe you can adopt some of it and make it part of your, you know, part of your thing. And all of these, like you've mentioned, are just starting points. Things change. Like they, they looks different on different gigs, totally. but by and large, I know that you're the same as me. That's, that's where I start. And now I feel confident in those choices. Cool. You know what I mean? So, there was a time. Oh yeah. Go so ahead. Much. Go ahead. At the time you didn't know. No, I was going to say, no, there was at a time when, I, I mean, when you mentioned, I can't remember if it was this video or the last one, man, I've tried every microphone under the sun that's reasonable on drum. I mean, and I, cause I just didn't, I wasn't sure. I didn't sure. know. Now I feel very confident in a lot of these choices, a lot of these positions. And I know, I know I can get results with it. You now know? also something to point out too, is that we do have kind of standards that we're always using, whatever. But if someone says to me that I respect like for instance, you or Toby Francis calls me and says, hey dude, have you tried this microphone on guitars? You really should. Um, mm -hmm. Then I am totally open. Like I'm not that guy that's like, I only use this microphone. Oh, no. You know what I mean? Oh like, no, no, no. That's so short-sighted and you are totally. pigeonholing yourself. Always yeah. be learning. They're always making things that are, manufacturers are always making better things. Uh, materials mm -hmm. get better, you know, all those kind of things. So don't don't pigeonhole yourself. Have an arsenal and have tools that you you have, but, but you know, uh, don't pigeon yourself. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of this. We're getting, you know, into, into the length of this. Real quick, how about guitars mm -hmm. and basses? Where do you mic them? Guitars for me is almost always the same. It is, if this is the dust cap, um, I'm just off of it. Now that's with, that's if it's a dynamic or a condenser. A lot of times with ribbons, I will go because they, 
it's slower uh, if you use them. You know, it's, it's a slower transient response, typically a darker sound. I will go closer to on-axis, directly on-axis. Never for me do I go on-axis with a dynamic or what it can move a little bit and every now and again you'll get the this we find this more and more now that everyone has a laptop and therefore is a producer but you know guys that are hey where are you putting that mic you know like i've got one guy who's just insistent that i that i it, it's at a 45 that's fine that's cool but for me i do that I go up that's where i start i'll move either way usually right up on it sometimes that fist back to again purposely lessen uh proximity effect uh bass which is usually just uh or do you want mics or just, you're just talking placement now. placement just placement yeah just placement, yeah so di obviously i make sure they plug it in for the mic uh it god it's rare that i use i do use bass mic but i'll change how i use it a lot through the course of a tour sometimes i'll turn it off and then other days i'll be like i've got it i only use the mic and then the next day i'm like how did that even work so <laughs> It's usually the same concept. I usually don't use mics with a lot of deep low end response. I'll use like, here's a weird one. It's the only time I ever spec this microphone I'll use. And it's because I saw a guy do it in 2000 and I thought it was cool. The, the sound he got, I'll use like a beta 57 a okay. that doesn't have, and it's just cause I heard somebody use it with good results. Cause I don't you know the point is I don't want a lot of the sub I want right. low end, but I don't want sub i want that from the di and i'll do the same thing there just off if there's a dust unless it's some multi-speaker thing in which i just throw up my hands but it's just a single cone that's doing yeah. full range same deal right off the desk cap what do you do so that that's uh an interesting discussion i want to come back to that real quick at the end of this but for me it's almost exactly the same but i usually the place that i start is uh splitting the dust cap like um you know here's the dust cap um so the the actual microphone is is just you know, between the speaker cone and the dust cap. So here's your microphone. You know what I mean? Interesting. Um, that's where I start. Um, mm. And I actually prefer on guitars most of the time. I like the proximity effect. I want to get it as close as I can. Um, in fact, um, I if if the guitarist is uh, is cool with it, sometimes I'll ask him if they if they'll let me take the grill off of the the. Um, the particular um, instrument that I'm miking. Um, yeah. You know, if it take the grill off, then you can even get, you know, the 57 dynamic or whatever you're using in there even closer to where, you know, the dust cap and the, and the speaker. Oh, do you take, I, I make sure there's tape. I still check it with a flashlight every day. Me too. But um, I, you, have you have some marker, I'm assuming. I have a well, marker right? in general for whoever's setting that stuff up. They can place it there and get the stand all tightened and correctly to where that is. But I definitely mm -hmm. come in behind them with a flashlight every single day and check it. Yeah. Um, Which just goes back to this thing we're talking about of just consistency, repeatability, reliability, minimizing variables. Yes. You know? So um, one thing that I wanted to bring up here right at the end, and you kind of mentioned it just a little bit, was multiple speakers on the same source and mm -hmm. you using multiple microphones. So for mm -hmm. instance, a 4 by 12 guitar cabinet, do you mm -hmm. mic two different speakers or do you always mic the same speaker with two microphones? I that's a tough one, man. It depends on who I'm working with. If I'm working with a guy, he, I know this dude doesn't know what it's loaded with. What's this? Let me, I'll go back. If it's like a super G and this guy's the man, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's like, yeah, I've got Al Nico's in there and there's greenback 25s. I'll be like, cool. 
Let's try both of them. Let's see what do you think. And that also, aside from getting me where I need to be, those interactions are very good for morale. That's very good to let whoever you're working with know, I'm not playing around. I know you're not playing around. Let's do this collaboratively, which is an important point. But anyway, so I'll just check. If they can know, I'll, I'll defer to their knowledge base and try it. If they don't know, I can't say that I often take the time to do all four. Sometimes I I might get near to it. I might just start somewhere. So I'm, if the person is knowledgeable, yes, I will be mindful of if it's in like an ISO box, God forbid, I'll pick us. I will tell you this. I'll choose inside the box more to try to get away from some of the weird reflections that might be on the outside and some of that wolf that's there. But what you clearly have, have a, a process here. What is it? <laughs> no, I don't really. But uh, but I will okay, tell good. you. I, I will tell you. Actually, the question that I was asking was a different question. But it's interesting that you went down that road. Oh, um, okay. The question that I was asking, and think about it as I'm talking, is um, miking two different speakers on the same source can get you all kinds of weird phasing issues. Oh, two sources far away from each other on the same source. So say you mic this speaker and Mike, the fourth speaker of the 412 no. doing that is, is a no, no, right? Like you don't do that. Right? Never. They, the cat, and in fact, the cat, they, I mean, the mics look like this. Yeah. Over Me too. Top of I, I think most people know yeah. that, but I've watched a lot of people do that where they put two microphones on the, you know, it's a four by 12 slant. And they've got uh, mm-hmm. 57 on one uh, one of the speakers and then a large diaphragm on the other speaker. And I always go, mm-hmm. oh, you're, in, do, you're encouraging all kinds of weird phase between those two microphones. Like, you know, mm-hmm. pay, take this large diaphragm one, and move it over here. You know, yeah. There is an argument if you were taking those mics and panning them hard. Yes. That some of that intent, some of that difference would be can help you. Yes, absolutely. Could help you, but But in general, when you're talking about, you know, you you want you're trying to capture the same source um, with two different kinds of microphones. So you you're using a large diaphragm microphone and then a small diaphragm dynamic. Let's say Mm -hmm. you're trying to capture two different nuances of that tone. You don't want to put those on separate speakers. That's that's Uh, that was my point. I get it. I get it. Um, and then um, you're you're all you're stopped right now. I guess our internet got weird for a second, but now you're back. Um, you were you were like frozen. Okay, cool. I heard a noise. <laughs> I just played it. I just played through. Oh, good. Take a break. Frozen. This is exhausting. Uh, it is. Yeah. No, but it's fun. Um, but the the thing that I do, uh, speaking to how you answered the question in the first place, is um, I will, if it's a guy that really knows what the hell they're talking about, I will have that conversation with them. Like, mm-hmm. hey, which have you found that this speaker sounds better than this one? You know, whatever, whatever. But I do, I definitely do make a tech or the player play and... I know it's like probably bad for my ears, but I shove my ear down in there, even if it's loud as hell. If it's loud as hell, I stick my ear into all four of the um, speakers and listen to them on the outside of the cone. And then where you know we were talking about before, I listen to them where the dust cone is. I use my ear to find where the sweet spot is in that person's rig. Now, luckily I don't do that every day. I only do that once, usually like rehearsals. Um, but that's 
to me, it's like, I'm going to be placing a microphone somewhere. I need to hear where the best sounding sweet spot of that instrument is. So mm -hmm. that's, that's mm -hmm. my thing. But, um, cool. Cool, man. Well, Hey, you know, listen, we're about 45 minutes into this. We're a little bit running out of time here. Um, Thanks a lot, dude. This is so much fun. It's fun. Yeah. I got a million ideas. I know. Even right? guitar. Oh, my. Mics. It's just. Oh, it's yeah. Good. It's awesome. And, you know, um, this isn't just for you guys out there. I've learned tons today or I learned, uh, you know, Chris said something today that I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to try that. Actually, that sounds really interesting. Um, so uh, we'll try to do a bunch more of these, uh, maybe do one or two a week um uh for you guys and and uh let us know if you're uh if you're enjoying them uh make sure you subscribe to my youtube channel and all of my social media and chris's social media um chris what's your uh what do you have instagram and facebook what's your instagram instagram is, is chris underscore Raybold, and that's r-a-b-o-l-d there's no y in there uh and then facebook is just me chris Raybold. Raybold. cool we'll follow all that stuff um i'll give you a splash screen at the end here uh that shows all my social media go ahead and follow uh if you subscribe to the youtube channel you'll get a notification that these videos whenever i post them um so we'll do some more of this thanks a lot chris i really really appreciate it, man. All right. Awesome, dude. Thank you. Take care.